humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 229, and I had a conversation with Eric Jones. He's a recipient of the Medal of Valor, uh, which is the highest honor a civilian can get in the United States of America. He's the founder of cvalor.org. And the mission of Sea Valor is to use sailing and other ocean activities to help improve the quality of life for those with physical or emotional wounds, such as PTSD, uh, underprivileged youth, and local heroes. So I had the opportunity to go up to Oakland, California, and I met Eric at the marina, and we went sailing. It was a blast. Uh, I went with, with Eric and a couple of his crew people, Jesse and Boots. And a few dogs, and it was great. It was so much fun. Uh, Lucky and Franklin, I always have to name the dogs. Lucky and Franklin and Maddie uh, were on on deck for cuddles, and it was a beautiful day. And I even got to, to drive the boat a little bit. Is that what they call it? I don't know, but that's what I did. Is it called driving the boat when you're on a, a sailboat and you're at the wheel? I'm going to say yes because I have no idea if if that's what it is. We're going to pretend it's like a car. Anyway, it's so great. They offer ocean-themed programs and activities which help uh, veterans, firefighters, healthcare workers, law enforcement, underprivileged youth, families of those affected by suicide, and anyone else struggling with physical or emotional wounds. I got that right off of the cvalor.org website. They are a donations-based program, and you can donate at cvalor.org. It's real great. Highly recommend it. This conversation was fantastic. Really good guy. He's done a lot to help his fellow human, which we love here at Hey Human. Other news, uh, if you are eligible to vote in the United States, please go register and or make sure you do cast your vote. It's a very important election. And remember, it's not just a presidential vote. It's also House vote, Senate vote, those seats, their seats open. Uh, There is sheriffs and county clerks and a lot of stuff that affects you at a local level. Also, I want to bring up, as I did last week, get counted by the census. You can go to 2020census.gov and get counted. Now, I've seen stuff on the internets that try to convince people that doing the census is a bad idea. Oh, that's how they that's how the man will know you and that's how you'll get tracked and things like that. Well, here's the thing. The census is important because in order to have proper representation for the people of this country, they need to know how many people there are and where they are. So, the census, they need to know for federal funding. They need to know for representation. All of that matters. Your voice matters. So make sure it's counted. That's my little speech. Okay. But seriously, I think it's very important. I think voting voting and census counting, all that stuff. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of talk to make us feel like we're not worth hearing from that could not be further from the truth. And in fact, it's so far from the truth that there wouldn't be so many people trying to convince you otherwise if it didn't matter. You know what I mean? The fact that the fact that there's so much disinformation and such a campaign for people to to not vote and to not be heard and to feel like, oh, it doesn't matter anyway. Um, that's intentional. 
because they don't want you to do it because they don't want anything to change. So that's my feelings on the matter. All right, enough of my, uh, my big speech about government and stuff or my little speech. In other other news, social media, Hey Human Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook and Susan Ruthism is on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I gotta tell you, though, I just watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix. Boy, it's hard to keep social media after seeing a show like that. But here we are. Uh, Susan at heyhumanpodcast.com if you want to email me. You can check out my music and art and things like that at susanruth.com and also sign up for the mailing list, which I do not hammer you with emails you'll get one about every quarter heyhumanpodcast.com has tons of links on the links page there and every episode has its own pile of links that i carefully pick to make sure you know all about our guest and what they're about and things we've talked about and and references and things like that books and movies and articles so definitely check that out internationally there are uh i put on the links page places where you can sign up to volunteer or donate. So that's really important on a global scale. And I should mention also, I appreciate the fact that this is now a global podcast. Thank you for listening and for spreading the word. I really appreciate it. And I know that sometimes when I talk, it it seems I'm a little United States centric and things like, oh, go vote or do the census or whatever. But I do believe that in every country that our having our voice heard is important and i think it affects every country so what we do here in the united states absolutely uh, ripples out into the rest of the world so as we have seen in the past few years it's it's an important it's important to have your voice be heard i know i'm like a broken record but i just i really believe that rate and review hey human on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts that's super duper helpful and uh, my friend sammy and i wrote a song about voting, and it's fun. We made a video. You can find that if you go to muskrats.com, M-U-S-C-R-A-T-Z.com. So definitely go and check that out. It's not safe for work, as they say, so just be aware of that. Maybe don't listen to it when you've got the little little ones in the car or something. So and that's it for me and my ramblings. Definitely check out cvalor.org and what they're doing. Donate to them if you can. It's a really worthy cause. And stay safe, everyone. Have each other's backs. Um, Give each other a hand. Be kind and loving. Because we are all fighting a battle. And we all know it. We forget. We forget that other people are going through stuff. And... uh, just be there for each other. God, we've got to survive. We've got to survive this humanity thing. It's it's a trip and it's hard, but it's it's worth it to be there for each other. Be there for each other. I'm going to say it one more time. Be there for each other. All right, here we go. Eric Jones, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, we are in lovely Oakland, not to be confused with San Francisco. No, we're in Emeryville. Is that still Oakland? Emeryville. It's next to Oakland. Next to Oakland. Yeah. I've got to get my California geography better uh, figured out. I was introduced to you from Tony Green, who's been on the show, and he's fantastic. And he was your teacher when you were a kid? He was a long time ago. He was my freshman year in high school history teacher. That's so cool. What a inspirational teacher to have. I'm sure that he 
blew people's minds open. He did. He was amazing. He was one of my favorite teachers and yeah. really got me thinking about the world in a larger perspective and planted a seed of wanting to travel and see what's out there. So That's I love Tony. He's great. Best teacher to have. I, I loved interviewing him. I think he's fantastic. All right, let's get to you. You grew up in California? I did. I grew up here in Oakland. Okay. Um, went to public schools up until high school and then transferred to a, a private Catholic high school. Why did you transfer? Um, Were you in trouble? No, I, I, I was in trouble. It was just they had a really good basketball team, oh. and I, I played basketball and really wanted to be on a good team. And yeah. academically, I think they were. It was a little more challenging. So yeah, well, I'm sure private schools usually are. All right, uh, what did you play? What position? I was a forward. I was gonna guess forward, yeah. but I wasn't sure. Okay. Yeah. Nice. You know, you favor a guy that I went to high school with, Christian. He was a point guard, uh, but y'all look very similar. Really, really good guy. He passed away, unfortunately. Not uh, to bring everybody down, but, uh, but really good guy. All right, so growing up, you're, I'm going to sort of regurgitate your history at you, and then you can expound, because that's the easiest way to do it, I think. Sure. Um, your father is military. Your grandfather uh, was a Tuskegee Airman. He was, yes. So freaking cool. Can you talk about that at all? Just about the history of your family and military? So, yeah, we have a pretty long line of, of military going back all the way, I think, to the Civil War on my father's side. And my grandfather was actually one of the original Tuskegee Airmen. Um, so it was really neat growing up with them. And as a kid, I would go to their conventions every summer with my grandparents. They were in different cities all over the country. So. It was just a really good group of people to grow up with and have as role models, and um, I really looked up to them. So, yeah, and, and just their history and what they'd been through and hearing the stories firsthand uh, was pretty incredible for a little kid to grow up like that. Did anything spring to mind that your grandfather told you about? Um, just the challenges um, that they faced, the, the adversity that they had to overcome. Uh, I remember this one of my grandfather's best friends, a man named Leo Gray, they flew together and Leo was telling me a story. I think they were they were in a fight somewhere, a dog fight somewhere, and his wingman went to a steep dive and wasn't able to pull up and you know, they saw him crash, but they had to keep going and didn't have time to to warn him, they just had to keep doing. So I think from a very early age I learned um, courage and sort of honor through my grandparents. And we talked yesterday that there's an archive of your grandfather's history by the National Archives. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to hear that one day. I've never found it, but... I'm going to have to dig dig around for that. Yeah, it'd be great. Yeah. If I find it, I'll definitely post it on the <clears throat> links page on the website on Hey Human. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and I'll send it to you, maybe, if you're lucky. All right. <laughs> so, as a kid, knowing that your grandfather did all this great uh, great thing for his country and served in the military and yet faced um, when he was back in America likely faced a lot of issues what was that like as a kid sort of putting that in perspective because you grew up in a totally different generation I did and that's a lot to wrap your head around that this man that you honor and admire so much had that struggle how do you wrap your head around that as a kid um just really, it was both my, my grandfather and my grandmother. I mean, they certainly experienced uh, segregation and, and discrimination growing up, but they were 
both very religious and, and faithful people and they taught me forgiveness. Um, and that was a very strong message to learn because they didn't hold any resentment. I mean, they were mistreated, who knows how many times, hundreds if not thousands of times throughout their lives, but they weren't bitter, they weren't angry. They loved this country um, tremendously. My grandmother was, she worked as a public servant her entire career for the government. Um, so yeah, it's just, I never, I never heard them speak poorly about the military or the country or even individuals. They just sort of put that in their past and moved on. And um, so yeah, I think the forgiveness was really, really an important message. I imagine that shaped your father as well. He was Air Force? He was. No, he was. He started out, he went to um, officer candidate school and graduated at the top of his class, which is, I mean, he's a very, very smart person. Um, and just worked his way up all the way to be a full colonel in the Air Force. And he flew in Vietnam, I think 80-something combat missions. So he's seen a lot as well. And um, same with him. I mean, he's certainly dealt with adversity throughout his life and in the military. And he never let it make him bitter or resentful in any way either. I can't even imagine coming back from Vietnam and everything that one would see there. And he was, he was at the time when he came back here to the Bay Area, I think he told me stories of actually being spit on. You know, he'd be in a uniform and people would spit on him because... The anti-Vietnam. Right. Yeah. Um, and I actually asked him recently, last week, how he was able to manage those things and sort of not react violently or not get into fights. I mean, he never, as far as I know, he's never been in a fist fight, um, which is odd to me. I mean, if somebody came up and spit in my face after I had just gotten back from combat, I'm not sure that I would have the calmness to not react somehow, but he never did. So again, he taught me just to think um, and work things out diplomatically, I guess, instead of through force. It's very zen. Yeah. To be a parent, too, after experiencing that has got to be a very bizarre thing. I would imagine. Certainly it is. Yeah. Was your family super close? Your only child? Yes. Were you all super close and tight-knit growing up? Um, I mean, yes and no. My parents were divorced when I was three, so I guess as close as <laughs> two divorced parents can be. But And my grandparents lived in Washington, D.C., so I'd only see them on summers or you know sometimes every now and then they would come out here for a visit but i wouldn't say that we were super close um but i know everybody loved each other yeah but we were spread out geographically so that made it yeah. more challenging did your grandmother in her service uh as a public servant did she do that at the pentagon then in dc or no mostly um i think she actually worked at the archives really yeah i mean she had government jobs but I think she actually worked at the archives I'd have to check with my dad but I think that'd um, be such a cool job can you imagine that your whole life is just collecting stories and making sure that people's because such a great generation is no longer really I mean there is there anyone there's just a handful left yeah I mean I was thinking about that yesterday I think my father my grandfather would be 110 this year yeah and so there's not many of his peers still left no. I don't know. I don't know how many of the original Tuskegee Airmen are still alive, but it's got to be a very, very small number. Uh, yeah, very small. It's it's such a shame too because I do think that we tend to forget our history yeah. and the voices that they carry those stories, the oral traditions onward. If they're no longer, and if nobody takes the time to go look at the archives or or read the stories, 
now online mostly you know what's going to become of yeah of all those people because those are names that need to be repeated and that's why especially like i mean as you know i was a speaker for one of actually several of tony's classes last week and just i got to sit in on one it was yeah, great yeah, yeah but, but just his ability to make history relevant i mean i i was i don't know if you were as impressed as the kids as i was but i was they blew I was, me away i was i actually sent him a note afterward that yes his students are exceptional and very bright and it it brought me hope because i do get nervous <laughs> no, that, those were my thoughts exactly i mean yeah. if this is what the future generation looks like i'm very encouraged because they were engaged they were um curious they were articulate articulate um yeah really a sensational group of kids and young adults really and tony did to him it's a credit you know what to inspire people to greatness that's probably the best word i mean he really did inspire me and i know he inspired um all the other classmates that i knew We, we loved going to his classes and yeah um yeah i'm just so glad that he and i have been able to stay in touch through these years and thanks to facebook actually but yeah well um, the double-edged sword of facebook yeah yeah for sure really happy it's kept he and i in touch and he's he's doing great things with uh helping um kids in the bay area and and yeah yeah he's a good guy yay tony (laughs) (laughs) Uh, when you graduated from high school did you have a plan to go into a service oriented profession or did that come about sort of came about after I mean I didn't really have a, a strong direction in high school I was sort of all over the place uh, I ended up going back to Washington DC and living with my grandfather after high school and um, my grandmother had died and mm-hmm. he needed help and I wasn't really I guess achieving all I could here in the Bay Area I think I had sort of stagnated and so I went back there and, and lived with him for a year or two and uh, went to junior college and that's when I sort of discovered the fire department and uh, emergency medicine and EMS rather. So, and you were in a program in college for that. I was. I went to uh, George Washington University, and they had this really neat program. Then it was the degree was a Bachelor of Science in out of hospital emergency medicine. So it was essentially you the first year you become a paramedic. So the entire first year I did paramedic school, and then. The following three years were the chemistry, um, general ed classes, biology, those sort of things. All the hard stuff. All the hard stuff. <laughs> but it was really neat because we we took higher level classes. So we were taking, for instance, gross anatomy with third year medical students. Uh, was it gross? <laughs> it, was, it was fascinating. Um, That's cadaver stuff. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You know, pharmacology with PA students. So. I was this 19-year-old kid and learning how to put in chest tubes and suture and do really sort of advanced things, and it was it was an incredible program. Were you natural for that stuff? I, I think so. Yeah. I think so. It didn't. Um, you know, I was very curious and just I loved I loved medicine, and I, my plan was to go to med school and become an ER doctor. So for me, it was great. It was a really really good foundation to have, and you know, I spent. I don't know, two years doing rotations and all sorts of different specialties in all the hospitals around D.C. Mm-hmm. and Northern Virginia. So it was a really 
great way to sort of see what was a good fit and I gravitated towards emergency medicine mm-hmm. and that's well, yeah. very calm I feel like I feel like you spring to things but stay this stay a true course which I assume in emergency anything and that's one of the most important things yeah. <laughs> you have a kindness and that helps too because people are scared and yeah and I think anybody I mean that just comes over time I, I remember certainly the first time I did CPR I wasn't calm no no I mean it's the adrenaline and you don't, <clears throat> you don't want to make a mistake and you know, you're literally trying to save somebody's life so but over time you do anybody in, in healthcare or the fire service or anything else you just learn how to sort of stay calm because being upset doesn't really do any good and you were a volunteer firefighter or were you an actual in the, so, I don't know the difference yeah so so I was in Prince George's County um Prince George's County is about, I don't know what it is now, but I think at the time it was maybe 50% volunteer and 50% paid. Mm -hmm. And really the only difference was if you were a volunteer, you could sort of work whenever you want and you didn't get paid. But we did, the duties were exactly the same. I mean, um, we had the station I was at in Hyattsville, we had a rescue truck, so we'd we'd do car accidents, um, you know, hazmat response. We had all the same training, went to the same fire academy is the uh, professionals we just didn't get paid so but I imagine emergencies like that happen far more often than fire well when I was there in, in Hyattsville I think Hyattsville my station we were one of the busiest fire departments in the entire country I mean obviously the ones in Manhattan I think were, were number one but just hundreds and hundreds of fire calls every year so it was a really good experience um, we stayed busy all the time I mean, pretty much every shift we'd go out on at least one fire truck call and two or three ambulance calls why did you decide to do that to do something so uh, well a important I get that part but for no money and just volunteer to go be of service like that I, I really enjoyed it you know and it was it was such a good way to be part of the community and to give back and, and just meet incredible people um, and yeah, I just, I really enjoyed the work Yeah. And, and being able to help and it was exciting. I mean, I was what, 18 at the time. So yeah, there was definitely that, that thrill and the excitement, but also get all just, the girls. Yeah, yeah, not so much, but uh, no, it was, it was just a lot of fun. And the people, the other firefighters and, and EMTs that I met and worked with, I mean, they're just really top notch people, so. Do you remember the first fire you had to go into? Um, I think the first one it was it was in the middle of the night and it was uh, it was a commercial fire. So there was it was like a, a downtown, and it was various stores were on fire. I think there two or three stores were on fire. And actually, my my job at the time was to take the axe and go break all the big plate glass windows that people could get in and out so that was that was my first experience was going around with this axe just breaking all the big windows um but yeah there were there were a lot after that i try to imagine because your brain is wired to keep you safe Mm -hmm. and to go into a situation where you are going to be unsafe in all likelihood is incredible to me yeah how to how to rewire your brain to be able to do things like that which of course would serve you later as we'll get to that as well Right. Yeah, and that's just, I mean, that's the nature of the, the fire department is from 
day one in the fire academy, you're sort of taught how to go into buildings and be safe about it and trust your partners. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of the nature of the job. I'm curious, when you were younger, did you have that, that quality where you would see something, a trouble and leap to it? Because last night we were at dinner, right. motorcycle accident, and you leapt right up and went to help. And I mean, I think that's a, that's a personality trait. Right. I don't, I'm sure you can learn it as well, but it seems like a no-brainer for you, you just sort of spring into action. Well, my mom was a social worker in San Francisco, so I think um, I certainly got some of that from her and, you know, my grandparents, my dad, it's just, I don't know. Rubbed just, off. Yeah. Somebody needs help, you help them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's go to uh, September 11th and talk about that a bit because, you know, that's a big deal to okay. me at least. Yeah. <laughs> sure you've compartmentalized that as well <laughs> but it's like oh i'm just doing what i'm supposed to do but you were going to school that day i was yeah i was i was taking uh graduate classes at gw george washington towards a master's in public health and yeah just the the route that i would drive where i was living it i would have to drive right by the pentagon pretty much every day and so that's it i was headed to class that morning uh, when the plane hit and that's how I ended up there. Did you, in, did you see it come in and hit? No, no, no. I was so, I was on the other side. So what I saw was just the initial, just huge, black smoke cloud coming up from yeah. the explosion. Uh, I had no idea it was a plane. I thought, I think my first thought was some sort of fuel truck, because um, it was just this dark black smoke. So I thought maybe there were a car accident or you know something. I, a large fire, but I had no idea it was a plane until... And you hadn't heard about later. anything else going no, on? No, and no. Mm -mm. Yeah. I had no idea about anything in New York or... So you pulled over and headed in? Yeah, so I, I drove my Jeep around and parked as close as I could. I mean, probably, I don't know, 100 yards or so from when the plane hit. Because at the time, they didn't have all the security walls and everything that they do now. So, I mean, you could really get pretty close. And so I just drove as close as I could and and got out and started helping carry people outside, you know, out of the building and then later further as far away from the building as we could get them. I can't even imagine what that scene must have been like. Total chaos. It, um, chaos, yeah, it was, people were calm though. So I don't, I don't know if chaos is really the word I would think of. I mean, everybody, I don't remember people running which, which is kind of strange. It was, people seemed to be a lot calmer than I think I would have imagined. I mean, there was this huge hole in the building and flames shooting out and smoke and everything, but there was certainly nobody was screaming, nobody was, nobody really seemed panic. It seemed more just, and maybe that's because it was a military building and I don't know if They've people's training. Right, yeah. right. But I mean, I, I remember that being one of the things I was very impressed about is just how calm people were. Did it, did it occur to people right away that you were there helping and did they s send you in a certain direction no, or did no, no. you just have to do what you were doing? No, I mean, there was, there was no organization at all. It was literally uh, mostly the people <coughs> that, that I helped carry other people out were, were Pentagon employees. Um, Deceased, I assume. 
no, I'm sorry. So most of the other rescue workers initially were Pentagon employees that were helping carry their I coworkers see. out. Got it. Maybe one or two other passerbys or something, but pretty much everybody I remember had some sort of uniform on uh, from one of the various branches. And yeah, I mean, it's literally we would just go in and, and drag people out, go back in, drag people out. We did that for, I don't know, 15 minutes or so. Did they gear you up? In no, order to- no, no, no. I mean, this was... I think the fire department hadn't even shown up at that point, so... You were really the first on, yeah. on the scene. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was there probably, I don't know, within f- five minutes or so. Maybe ten, I don't know. Probably... You, how long were you... You were there for three days straight? No sleep? Just rocking I, on? I think four. I finally left that Friday afternoon, so... On pure adrenaline and... Yeah. I, they, um, they had a tent with some cots in it, so maybe get an hour or two of rest. I don't know if it was really sleep. I don't remember actually falling asleep, but at least we'd lay down sometime, you know, two or three in the morning or something for a few hours. And were there people there to take care of y'all that, that fed and watered you while you were doing all this? I'm, I'm sure. Red the, Cross? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think the, the fire, the um, Arlington County had a canteen truck, but I don't really remember that specific. But I mean, definitely had food and water. I just don't remember where yeah. it came from. I, I think there was a canteen truck or volunteers or something, but um, I don't really remember eating much either. So going from someone who experienced the medical training just as a, as a first responder to being in the thick of something so violent and tremendous, how do you compartmentalize something like that in the moment? I think... I think it's pretty easy in the moment because it was it was all very simple. Initially it was people were hurt, they needed to be carried out of the building. So there wasn't much confusion as far as what needed to be done. It was just get this person from inside the building to outside where they could receive treatment. So that was that was all really anybody cared about for the first half an hour, hour or so. Had the news trickled in by the second, I mean, I imagine by the end of the first day, you had an idea of what was going on? Yeah, yeah, I mean, maybe within two hours or maybe even less than that, but probably within the first hour, people started talking about New York. And then um, I remember specifically hearing that the first tower had collapsed. So that was, I think, in real time. And I'm not sure exactly how many minutes it had been, but. Uh, it was all word of mouth and sort of second or third hand because this was we didn't have smartphones you weren't watching Mm. CNN or anything on the phone it was people that would hear something from somebody and then it would work its way down to us Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah by by the first hour or so we knew that it was a terrorist attack yeah I remember uh, being asleep in my room and my roommate Ellen who uh, my best friend she, she and I were roommates at the time she came up into my room, she said, something's going on, a, a plane hit one of the towers in New York. And I said, what, wait, it was an accident? She said, nobody knows. Right. And so then I got out of bed and I came downstairs and we watched together as the second one. And I was like, Jesus, this is, a, this is an attack. Like this is, something is major is happening. And my parents were out of town. Right. And uh, I tried desperately to find them because they thought they were so sly. They were we're going on a little trip. We're not telling anybody <laughs> where we are. <laughs> we just knew they were in Las Vegas. Yeah. That was crazy. But, um, yeah, 
boy howdy so what where in your mind did you make that shift okay once i'm done here i'm gonna go to ground zero or did that just happen as a linear obvious thing to do yeah so that like i said that friday i left and i went home um and there was a message or two on my my answer machine people from my fire fire department were going up to new york because most of the new york firefighters same thing they'd been working around the clock so they were exhausted as well i mean they were pretty much working from the morning of september 11th and never left the scene so they're going on four days with you know same thing very very little sleep and, and so, many of their friends had perished yeah yeah and so and fire, fire departments from all over the country were sending teams and mm -hmm my department same thing there were teams going up there and so that's how I ended up going up to New York and I went home and I just remember being like I didn't want to be home at all I didn't I was I didn't want to be by myself and I was trying to process everything I had just experienced at the Pentagon for those four days and so I as soon as I heard that message I mean I was out the door within probably five minutes I just I don't even think I changed I just grabbed my my turnout gear and um yeah, maybe a change of underwear and that sort of thing, and toothbrush, and threw it in the car, and then ended up going up to Ground Zero. Yeah, and how did you how did you first experience it when you arrived? How did you know as it's hitting you the gravity of the entire situation? Yeah, are you still maintaining that calm and level headedness, or is it starting to? So. The, I guess the biggest regret I have from the Pentagon was not finding anybody else alive. I mean, for the first day, that was the hope that there were people trapped, that we'd find more survivors. Um, and that's everybody there. That's what sort of kept us going is, is the hope of finding other people. And as the, the first day wore on and then the second day, it became clear that, you know, there was nobody else alive. And that was a hard pill to swallow. And so I think for me, the chance of being part of actually finding people alive in New York. I mean, I was, I really needed that. I needed that. And I was, I was, I guess, I don't think excited is the right word, but um, I was optimistic that I could be part of helping recover people alive, you know, that were perhaps trapped in a stairwell or buried or, or who knows. And so I really wanted to be a part of something positive because the experience of the Pentagon had just been so disheartening um, and sad. So I think that's, I, I certainly was calm, but I just really wanted to get there as soon as I could and join up with with uh, the rest of the people from my fire department. And How long were you in Ground Zero working? Um, I don't know exactly, but into, I think it was right around maybe 10 days or so, something like that, uh, maybe 11 days. Um, how did you protect yourself from it? So I know a lot of people have gotten sick. Yeah. Uh, do you see any of that happening to you? Have you experienced any of that? I, I have, yeah. I mean, I, I had a lot of lung issues for the first year or so. I, every time I'd lay on my back, I'd cough and had trouble sleeping because I coughed so much and I had difficulty walking upstairs and uh, skiing, that sort of thing. I'd run out of breath very quickly. It's gotten better over the years, but yeah, I mean, I, I think everybody that was there, because we didn't really, it was just too hot. You couldn't wear your breathing apparatus. I mean, so typically firefighters, you'd wear, it's like a scuba tank. It's an air tank on the back and breathe out for an hour or so and then put in a new bottle. And But that just wasn't realistic up at Ground Zero because it was, 
you were there for 24 hours a day. So you'd be, I don't know, going through 20, 20 bottles or something a day. And the resources just weren't there for that. So we didn't have masks. We, I guess every now and then we'd use those respirators that used for painting, but they were just too hot. Um, so I think most of the time we just didn't wear anything or, you know, we'd have like a cloth mask or a bandana or something. And I had my, my, it's a, like a fireproof polyclaver, however you pronounce it, that <laughs> like you see the race car drivers wear, it's what firefighters wear. It goes, it covers your, your head and your ears and most of your face. So I, I wore that and I'd pull that up over my nose and mouth a bunch, but I don't know how effective it was. Because yeah. the whole thing, I mean, Ground Zero, you know, as you know, it was on fire for weeks. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was still on fire when I left. So I don't know when they finally extinguished it. But. It boggles my mind that there wasn't enough supplies to keep everyone safe who was trying to get in there and rescue. They, I just think, oh, well, that's one fighter jet they could have not purchased so that... Yeah. That they, stuff frustrates me to no it, end. It is. I mean, they, they tried, like, the, the volunteers that that were at Ground Zero. I don't know where they came from, probably all over the country, but I mean, they were incredible. Anything we needed, food, water, um, and they did. I mean, they, they did the best they could with what they had. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there are thousands and thousands of rescue workers at Ground Zero. And so trying to get masks and, or you know respirators or something to that many people, I just... With, with such little warning and planning. I don't know. Yeah. Just, I, mean, I think they did a, the best they could. I'm hoping there's things in place now. Yeah. I would hope so. I would hope so. That God willing. That hopefully that nothing like this again. Exactly. But yeah. if it were to, I, I would hope that they have supplies needed to protect the people that are trying to rescue folks. Uh, how, how'd you feel about leaving? That must have been really difficult. Um... I was just, I was so exhausted by then that I was, I was ready to go. And I unfortunately was not part of finding anybody alive at ground zero either. And so by the time I left, I was just emotionally and physically spent, um, as was everybody else. I mean, it was two weeks after the fact and people had just been working around the clock pretty much at ground zero as well. How did you come to terms to process? I'm sure it's a lifelong experience, things you've seen, but... Yeah, it's, well, like you said, I mean, I'm still processing it in many ways, and um, I don't I don't know if there's a particular way that works for everybody, but I've certainly found things over the years that have helped me sort of come to peace and come to terms with what happened. How do you feel when you hear about people talking conspiracy about, oh, the Pentagon never got hit, and those were all crisis actors yeah, and all that? you know, I... One of my neighbors, when I lived in Colorado, nice guy, he and I were skiing together, and on the drive home, somehow it came up, and, you know, same thing, he was telling me that it was a missile that hit the Pentagon, and, you know, so I, I tried to explain to him, and I said, Kyle, look, I was there, I picked up parts of the plane, I mean, you could see clearly, it says American Airlines on the tail, I mean, it was 100% a plane, and he just, I don't know, I don't think he ever really believed me, there's some conspiracy guy on the on the internet that has a whole uh, blog about me and a few other people saying how we were CIA agents and helped plant bodies there and you know we're part of the cover up. So I mean, people are going to have their conspiracy theories. <laughs> how exciting! But, yeah, it's very well written. Um, I actually, wrote out, reached out to the guy asking if he wanted to get lunch, but I never heard back from him. Oh, I would just love to hear what these people like. 
we, you know, when they talk to somebody like me who's saying, look, I was there, I literally picked up But they don't want to hear that, pieces of do the they? Plane. No, I mean... They don't want the truth. They want to be able to per- perpetrate the whatever's going on in their brain pan. Yeah, and I don't know if it's just for attention or some people just like, you know, like we were talking about last night with the flat earth. and mm. So, I, I don't know. I, th- I think a lot of these people don't really truly believe it. They just sort of enjoy being part of that. The attention it brings? Yeah, I, I guess so. But I mean... It's so dangerous perpetuating things like that. Though. And it's also, to me at least, I, mean, I don't know how other people feel about it. It's so disrespectful to the families that, uh, who lost loved ones, to the yeah. people who worked tirelessly to get... I'd be furious. I mean, it's the same with like these... Column. Well, yeah, like yeah. the Sandy Hook Sandy people. Hook, yeah. say it's, I mean, I'd be furious if I was a family member who'd lost somebody. But, you know, people are entitled to their p- opinions. And if yeah. people are dumb enough to believe these people, I mean, all I can do is say, look, I was there. Either you trust me and when, when I tell you that, yes, it was a plane. And same with New York. I mean, I saw they had, they had a, I think I have a picture somewhere where they had this huge dumpster and it said plane parts. And any plane part went in this big and it dumpster. Was filled with Legos. <laughs> no, I mean you can you can see yeah. the engines. Like right. somehow they got the engines in these things. So of course. Yeah, I mean people can think whatever they want, but yeah, it, it was a plane in the Pentagon for sure, and definitely Ground Zero because I've seen the parts, and I'm a pilot. I know what planes look like. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Let people think what they want. I guess. Yeah, it's still frustrating. Uh, when you found out that you were going to be given the Medal of Valor for everything that you had done? Did, what was that moment like? Um, you know, I was, I was really honored, of course, and, and humbled because I knew that I was just one of dozens of people. Um, so I wasn't exactly sure why I had been singled out, but I was certainly honored. Um, I think I was nominated by lieutenant colonel that had seen me actually carrying people out and you know she she sort of wrote about that what she witnessed and yeah so it was just an incredible honor and my grandfather was there some of the Tuskegee Airmen were there my, my father was there my I watched there. it did you I did uh, and I'll tell you something your speech was phenomenal it was really lovely and I did not count a single um <laughs> Which oh, really? is nearly impossible for me, I know. So, well um, done. Under that, uh, under that yeah, uh, well, I was, pressure. I was caught off guard. I didn't know we'd have to speak. And as you can tell now, I mean, I, I hate speaking in public speaking. You're doing speaking. great. Um, doing great. But yeah, so they, I, was, I was a little bit caught off guard. But And the man that also was awarded. Steve, yeah. What a lovely man. He was incredible. And, and I'd actually seen him, not within the first hour or so, but I actually worked with him somehow. I think he was part of the uh, Mortuary Affairs team also, because the same thing, he'd stuck around and... Is that what you were assigned to, Mortuary yeah, Affairs? Yeah, that's what I volunteered for, the Mortuary Affairs team. And so I got to know Steve during those four days, and yeah, just he helped, I don't know, like 20 people or something maybe mm-hmm. get out of the building. So he was a definitely, definitely worthy of that as well. Um, yeah, just an incredible person. Where do you go from that? How did you spend the next not not from the Medal of Valor which incredible honor obviously and you were uh, you were given a flag as well correct was it was yeah yeah two was. flags actually but the um, I was given one from the Pentagon it was a huge flag and I didn't really have any place to, uh, to I mean I don't know how many feet this thing is 
like 20 feet long or something. So I had it folded as best I could and I kept it in my closet for the first year. And then I actually got to know Ross Perot. And he has this, he flew me to Texas a couple times to help pay for medical treatments or I saw a pulmonologist there and a neurologist for some other issues I was having. So I got to know him and he just, he loves the military and he loves this country and he has this museum where people that he's helped over the years, especially veterans and their families, to say thank you, they give him various things. I remember he had Osama bin Laden's cane from Tora Bora. He had Osama bin Laden's AK-47 that you'd see in all of the photographs, you know. So just really interesting stuff. There was a picture of him where the entire crew of uh, one of the aircraft carriers spelled out, thank you, Mr. Pro, uh, by standing on the carrier deck. So just, he has all this stuff in the museum and, and I asked if he would like that flag to you know display it and so he said yes and that's where it's been all these years it's in Plano Texas in his little museum I was really sad when he, he died because he's just and he never wanted any sort of recognition and that's one of the things he told me he said you know pay for whatever uh, medical stuff you need but just you know, keep it, keep on the it down yeah keep it quiet he didn't want recognition or anything else so did yeah, all he, those things that you were seeking treatment for um, did it all work out okay? I, I guess. I mean, my lungs are better now, so I, I guess it's... still skiing? Yeah, yeah, I still skiing. And snowboarders um, aren't trying to take you out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I just he was an incredible person. You met a lot of people through all your work, huh? Is it... Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting experience. Because you were in the Olympics, the torch... No, no, I wasn't in the Olympics. I, um, I think President Bush selected me, and then a woman, Elizabeth Howell, whose husband Brady was killed at the Pentagon, so he selected the two of us to be torchbearers at the White House for oh, the Olympic ceremony. Okay. Yeah. okay. So she ran the torch in, and, and she gave it to him, and then he gave a two- or three-minute speech or something, and then he gave it to me, and I ran it outside the White House, around the front of the White House and then lit a truck and that the truck drove the flame to Philadelphia. That's so cool. So yeah, it was, and President Bush, I mean, I, I didn't necessarily agree with him for a lot of his political things, but he really was incredible to the rescue workers. The first time I met him was on September 12th and he actually came to, I mean, the Pentagon was still on fire, like smoke and everything else. And he came there and I mean, he was 20 feet away from, from the burning building and he spent I don't know, maybe an hour, and he shook every single rescue worker's hands. He just went down the line, and uh, I don't know, there were probably 40 of us or something on the, the Mortuary Affairs team. And he spent probably a minute with each of us just thanking us and encouraging us. And I mean, it was true leadership. And so I really respected that about him. And it was, it was so important because our morale at that point was very, very low. It was, what, 24 hours or maybe 30 hours in, hadn't found anybody else alive and it was just this nightmarish uh, situation I've just seen death everywhere and so to have him come and actually show concern uh, it meant a lot and it really lifted everybody's spirit so yeah he was he was um, very very much appreciated for that did you resume your studies no no <laughs> no after after that experience I decided I'd I'd be happy if I never saw another dead body. And I just knew that I couldn't 
continue with the medicine and going down that road. Yeah. I needed time to process. Uh, I thought maybe I'd eventually go back into it, but I was having health issues and you know mental health issues from all that. So I needed. I knew I, I knew that I needed to work on those things first, um, and then I just decided I wasn't for me anymore. And um, your PTSD from all of that experience, I'm sure, was amplified every with every step. Yeah, and, and it's one of the things with with uh, PTSD. It took years to sort of understand that that's what was happening. I didn't I didn't really know much about it, um, but over the course of the, the following years, I sort of learned that that's what I was experiencing: depression and anxiety and you know, sleeplessness. Uh, all sort of stemmed from those two weeks. Yeah, and. PTSD with military and firefighters and police officers and it's it's very high. It is unfortunately, yeah. It's um, well, as you know, I mean that's how I ended up doing what I'm doing now. But I've known I think seven people that have taken their lives because of PTSD since 9/11. I mean, a couple of people that I didn't know them well. I wouldn't, wouldn't say that we were friends, but I knew them. I certainly spent a few hours at least working with some of them and. Um, so yeah, it, it hit. It hits very hard every time you hear something like that, because these are these are my heroes. I mean, all these people, and I'd seen what they'd done and the sacrifices they'd made, and so for them to be so despondent that they decide that taking their own lives is their best course. I mean, it's just heartbreaking every time it happens. Yeah, of course. What did you do for the next couple of years? For what? What was your plan? Um, after nine eleven, just. Mm-hmm moved fully into civilian life and got married and you know did did the uh what we were talking about my little urban farm and mm-hmm. re- rescue animals and that sort of thing but the 9-11 stuff it was always sort of on the forefront I'd, I'd never really figured out how to separate myself from that um even now i'm, I'm probably like this past 9-11 anniversary was probably the worst one i've ever had for some reason it was very emotional do you think it's because the, the country is so divided? I think I think that's part of it. And, uh, it's as if people forget. You know, they come together for this thing and then it dissipates. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's one of the things I think we talked about with uh, Mr. Green's class, Tony Green's class, is just, for me, what I witnessed during those two weeks was incredible because you had people from all different backgrounds, races, religions, genders, socioeconomic status, um, ethnicities, you know, even people from foreign countries. And it didn't matter. People, the only goal was to help fellow Americans that had been hurt or killed. And to witness that and just see how strongly and closely people could come together. Yeah. It was incredible. And then over these years, just seeing the divisiveness, especially that we're now, it's it's sad. And I hope we can figure out a way to get past this. But I do too. Well, the anti-Muslim, uh, issue that that cropped up after 9-11 too I'm, i've talked to a lot of people that yeah you know the hate that was it's like being a, an asian american right now and they're getting a lot of hate and right. people are being spit on and yelled at and called terrible names and it's it breaks my heart that people cannot see the humanity as a whole yeah it's it's it is and that the actions of a few horrible people right. somehow dictate how everyone who, who would want to be lumped in like that? That's like saying, oh, you have blue eyes. So everyone with blue eyes, they're terrible. They've done these things. So I'm just going to hate 
Yeah, no, it's it's awful, and I mean, I took it extremely personally because some of my best friends are are Muslim, and uh, one of my best friends in college, Amir, he's now the top orthopedic surgeon at Vanderbilt, and his brother Iman. I mean, they are the ultimate American success story. They came here as young children, you know, wanting a better life, fleeing the difficulties in Iran, and just worked extremely hard, and you know, got scholarships to college and then into medical school, and now. Like I said, Amir is, is the top orthopedic surgeon at Vanderbilt. Who knows how many lives he's saved? And his brother is a cardiologist out here in California. Uh, my friend Aby in Walnut Creek, who owns an insurance company that employs 20-something people. Same thing. I mean, he came here. I, I've known him since first grade. Hmm. Um, but yeah, to see them discriminated against and called terrorists, and uh, it was just awful. And especially Amir, I went to visit him in... in Tennessee when he was in medical school and there were situations where he'd be treating people literally saving their lives and they were saying I don't want you touching me you know find somebody else and so that was heartbreaking to, to hear those stories I hope that it's gotten better in the past 20 years but I don't know if the past couple of years have anything to show uh, yeah I don't know um so Haiti hmm. the earthquake happened 2010 right. what what inspired you then? Was it just the same thing? Like, people need me and I'm going to go? Yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, I was at a point in my life where I was sort of in transition and the earthquake happened and for the first few days I had no interest in going whatsoever. Um, and then as the days wore on and I had friends going from, from the fire department and a uh, team from Johns Hopkins with, with uh, they're part of the search and rescue team and then medical team. And so I eventually decided after I don't know, four or five days that I was just sitting there literally doing nothing and I felt that my experience uh, and my training could be used and I was being selfish by not going. And so, yeah, I went and met up or joined up with the teams there and spent a couple of weeks in Haiti. Did you have to... I mean, I imagine if you're already having the PTSD issues, having to override your brain going, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you going back into this? <laughs> yeah, maybe a little bit, but again, with Haiti, it, it was um, the idea of being able to help. And you think about, and you'd see the images on TV of just people trapped in rubble. And then here I am sitting, I, I have skills and yeah. I had the time. I wasn't, there was no reason I couldn't go. And so I just felt I was being selfish by not going. And and Haiti, actually, I mean, it was, it was incredibly devastating, of course, but, um, we were able to help save people, which is something that, unlike you know, Ground Zero, um, I mean, in Haiti there were people that were pulled out weeks after the earthquake still alive. And so for me to be part of that, to be part of something positive, um, it, it, you know, it was good. I have a couple friends who also uh, were there volunteering and they said the thing that struck them the most was that in the midst of, firstly, the poverty there is, astronomical but in the midst of this devastation mm -hmm. there was joy and people were singing and, oh, you know, yeah. and and there was and there was hope yeah i've never seen anything like that and in fact i was asked recently what my favorite country is and i think i don't know if that was in the class that it you might have been. Watched, but my answer was haiti and it was for that reason because the people i mean port-au-prince absolutely destroyed the out you know the smaller cities and towns were just totally destroyed and so 
and I think, what is it, like 250,000 people were killed. So, I mean, everywhere you went, there were just bodies and the smell of death, and um, pretty much every building was unsafe and unstable. But there wasn't despair. I mean, people, again, they were helping each other. I mean, of course, there were instances of looting and that sort of, but overall, they came together, and the international community came together, and volunteer organizations from all over the world. And so it was uplifting to see humanity uh, in, a, in a time of incredible need bond together and figure out what needs to be done to help people. And so, yeah, I mean, that was, that was uplifting. And the Haitians, their spirit and their strength, and like you said, the people, it was just so encouraging. Do you believe in a higher power? I mean, I, I do, yeah. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like, but I, I believe there's something greater than us. And I mean, you look at nature and how a tree works or a flower or a dog, honeybees or dogs or something. <laughs> and, you know, until a scientist can prove to like take two inanimate rocks and somehow use a mathematical equation to create life, you know, if they can ever replicate that in a lab, but until then I like to think that there's some sort of intelligent being or spirit or, or something that, has helped create all of this. I just, I don't know exactly what that looks like. Does that help? I mean, I, I think so, yeah. Uh, I think it's sad to think that we're just created from dust that somehow found life and I don't know. So yeah, I, I like to think that there's something larger and that when we die or our spirits or souls or whatever come back somehow or it's comforting. Yeah. Have you had moments where you didn't want to be on the planet anymore after seeing everything you've seen? Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. What um, brings you back? What grounds you again? Um, hmm. Just the desire to keep trying, you yeah. know, not give up. And I think uh, life is precious. And if 9-11 taught me anything, it's just how precious life is and how quickly it can be extinguished and taken from us. So. I would never have looked that gift horse in the mouth, I guess. Yeah. What brought you to Sea Valor? Um, so that's it's something I, I started a couple years ago uh, specifically to help people with PTSD because I know what a struggle I've had with it. Uh, just the access, the, the barriers to access in medical care and specifically mental health care mm -hmm. were huge. And you know, I have a, a minor in psychology and great college education and friends and family and resources and health insurance um, and even for me it was so hard it's so hard to find a therapist that accepts your insurance and can see you and knows about PTSD and then you, you trust and so you know I've, I've really struggled with it for the past 20 years and I just thought well if I'm having such a hard time you know think about all the people that don't have the same resources or, or sort of knowledge that I have and so it frustrated me and it frustrated me that I keep seeing American heroes kill themselves and whether that's overt acts like you know hanging or, or using a gun or something or if they're more subtle like alcoholism or you know, overdosing on, on drugs or something but or die of disease homeless yeah exactly which is a huge problem with veterans and, sure yeah I mean especially here in the Bay Area and so it really it's it's so frustrating and that's not even a strong enough word to see our country with our incredible resources. And I feel like in many ways we've just turned our back on people and especially veterans. I mean, send people overseas, men and women to, 
do what our country asks them to. They don't want to be there. They don't want to be killing people and you know being shot at. Um, but they do it because it's their duty. And then they come back and they have issues with what they've seen or what they've done. And they just can't seem to get the resources that I, I feel they're entitled to. And it's just so frustrating. And so I thought perhaps there was a way that I could use sort of my experience and uh, people that I've met over the years and maybe the, the, the Medal of Valor to sort of raise awareness about what a huge problem this is in the country and, and see if you know there's something that can be done you know, maybe start a national conversation that, hey, look, these are the problems. You have, what, 22 veterans or the average number that's thrown out. Let's just say 22 veterans a day killing themselves and who knows how many firefighters or police officers or healthcare workers or just really anybody that's experienced trauma in their life and yeah. just needs help working through it. The COVID workers, the healthcare workers that oh, exactly. have been committing suicide, the ones that are on the front lines of dealing with this pandemic. Which yeah, again, it's, it's so frustrating that people are like, oh, it's fake, it's fake. Yeah, it's It's, it's so disrespectful. It is, it's infuriating. And like I said earlier, I mean, if people want to think there's a conspiracy with you know, missiles or something hitting the Pentagon, sure, let them think that. Or if they don't, if they want to think the earth is flat or there wasn't a moon landing, let them think whatever they want. But when it comes to something like wearing a mask where you can, fine, if you don't want to, if, if you don't want to protect yourself, that's fine. But don't be in a situation where you can give it to somebody else. Like my father, who's 81 years old and has cancer. I mean, it's just so disrespectful. Um, and your father isn't a throwaway human. It's yeah. The idea that people over a certain age are somehow not worthy of no, continued existence no, it's is absurd. absurd. Yeah, and so, I mean, I don't like wearing a mask. I'm sure you don't like wearing no, a mask. Nobody does. No. But it's you do it because it's skin, let me tell you. <laughs> well, it's just yeah, nobody nobody likes wearing a mask, but you do it because it's it's the respectful thing. It's the right thing, thing to do. Thing to do so. And even if I would venture to say that even if the research obviously we don't have all the data but even if it's a well maybe it works and maybe it doesn't why not err on why the side, not of, err caution. On the side yeah. of caution it's like believing in a higher power yeah. it's that well maybe there is maybe there isn't but let's just hedge our bets and go yeah, I mean, for it. it doesn't hurt it doesn't hurt anything yeah like you said if it, it's if an it, inconvenient if it saves life. 10 lives in the country yeah you know isn't that worth it if it saves a hundred or a thousand I mean it seems like it would be yes yeah, so that's that's frustrating. Yeah, um, why a sailboat or two? <laughs> yeah, uh, and explain that too. That process you sold your house. It did, yeah, and, and ended up getting the boats. But so, like I said, I mean, in the past, it's been almost twenty years since nine eleven, and I've tried conventional therapy and antidepressants and um, support groups. Uh, Meditation. I mean, I've tried a lot of the traditional things, and some have helped, some haven't. But one of the things I found with depression and PTSD is you sort of lose sight of things that make you happy. And for me in particular, I mean, prior to 9-11, I was a totally different person. I was a pilot. I loved flying. I loved skiing and traveling and, you know, going to the beach with my dogs, scuba diving, whatever. And then after 9-11, everything was just sort of dull. And... And it's still not back to how it was. I don't think it ever will be. But um, yeah, you just sort of forget what it's like to feel happiness because you're just constantly weighed down by the traumatic whatever events that, you know, whether it's nightmares or lack of sleep. And it's just like this gray cloud that's constantly over you. And so for me, I really had to focus on, okay, what, 
what things in life make me happy and, and animals you know rescuing animals I had that little mini farm in Northern Virginia that really made me happy but uh, it's not really practical to have donkeys and horses and llamas and everything out here so that wasn't sort of a long-term solution um, so for me I, I found that the ocean and being part of this just incredibly vast and powerful force uh, that brought me happiness and being out on the water whether it was on a paddleboard or a surfboard I'm, I'm not a great surfer but I mean it's just there's this tranquility and then sailing in particular I picked that up about 10 years ago just when I was in Virginia on the Potomac River in tiny little boats and then a friend invited me to bring his sailboat up from Florida to Annapolis so for, for four days we were out there in 20 foot swells out in the, the Atlantic Ocean coming learning out. as you went I mean yeah yeah I, I was crew so there were three of us on the boat and the, the other two people really were experienced but they they taught me okay do this do that and so four days just being out in the water I mean it was so therapeutic and it was probably the happiest I'd felt in at least since since before 9-11 so that sort of planted the seed that was maybe 10 years ago and actually I was under contract for a sailboat 10 years ago and it just kind of fell through somebody outbid me um, which yeah it's frustrating but <laughs> so when this opportunity came about here after my, my after I moved back to California I started sailing with friends on the weekend and I found that I could be sad and sort of depressed during the week, but then come Friday, I'd start looking forward to Saturday and, and our sailboat trips. And for those four or five hours we were out sailing, I felt good. You know, I was around like-minded people, I was part of a team, part of nature. And so that's really what, what got me thinking about it. Well, if this has helped me when so many other traditional therapies have not, maybe it can help other people. And so, you know, I had the, like I said, I was a, uh, bifurcation in my life where I could go one way or the other and I decided to actually pursue this and see if I could you know do something that might help other people so and yeah, we'll see so far so good and uh, talk about your crew a little bit the people that come out and help and facilitate because uh, uh, people reach out to you that have PTSD and, and yeah. to be a part of the program but there's people on your crew that are trained to help them right yeah so the idea with, with sea valor is um i started with one boat and i have two boats and really that's it i mean really anybody with with ptsd or depression or uh I mean, those are sort of the target groups that i'm focusing on now um but yeah they come sailing and they learn to sail and we spend four or five hours on a saturday or sunday and there's no agenda people just come out and if they want to talk to other people they do if they don't they don't um, if they want to learn specifics then we'll sort of teach them the basics if they want to just enjoy the ride and then they always have an open invitation if they want to actually be part of the crew and volunteer in whatever capacity or just keep coming out and so I mean that's how I've ended up with the crew that I have now they all started started sailing and enjoyed it and now like you've met Jesse and Eric yesterday and there's great guys a, yeah it was a lot of fun thank you yeah you're welcome um we didn't we didn't do normally the long trip that we do but at least you got an idea of what it's like that's great i got to steer that was exciting yeah and <laughs> see the dolphins yeah and, um and cuddle dogs that was the that was the best <laughs> yeah and so what, I, what i'm hoping is that eventually it can grow to something where you have rich people with boats that use them once or twice a year uh paired up with 
veterans, firefighters, law enforcement, nurses, teachers, etc., all over the country. So it's a win-win. So that the people with the boats that rarely use them can take out, you know, other people that wouldn't otherwise have that opportunity. You know, inner-city kids or, or economically challenged kids, I guess. Sexual assault survivors. Yeah, I mean, the the options are limitless. And you and, know, the people on board are trained to deal with this sort of that with the emotional aspect of the people that are coming on board. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes we'll have a therapist, a PTSD therapist. Um, but again, they don't. There's there's no requirement that anybody talk. It's like right. here's. If you want to talk about anything, but what what happens, I found, is people become friends on the boat and they share that bonding experience, and then they'll exchange phone numbers. Mm -hmm. And many times, people have made friends on one of our boats, and you know that's part of it is with with PTSD and depression, you just often feel so isolated and alone. And to just know that you're not alone and there's other people going through similar things, it's just for me, it's been hugely helpful. And sort of the feedback I've gotten in the past year and a half is that. You know, it's, it's helped several people for sure. It definitely takes you outside of yourself. When you're on, you feel the, the water at your face and there's so much to look at and it smells good and it's fun and everybody's so nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's just, it's just, it's hard not to have fun and not to just appreciate the ocean and the wind. And, you know, you have a 50,000 pound boat being pushed at eight knots through the water with nothing but wind. It's just, it's incredible to see how human ingenuity has been able to harness just nature yeah. for common good, I guess. I talked to my dad this morning and I was telling him all about it and I sent him the pictures from oh, yesterday yeah. and he was asking a million questions. He was so excited. It's like a little boy. It was really cute. Oh. Yeah. He was, asking, he was asking all sorts of stuff. He said, so did you use the engine or was it the sail? I said, no, it was the sail. And he said, that's so cool. <laughs> it was yeah. really sweet. He said, did you get seasick? Because he gets seasick. And I said, not at all. I was fine. Good. I, good. I did fall down once, but I got back up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. How do you raise money to help pay for everything? Um, it's all donation-based, so okay. I've, I've sort of been self-funding it uh, while I work out the kinks. But yeah, now I'm I'm looking. I need to make it sustainable. So how can people donate? Um, they can go to the website cvalor.org and there's a donate button. Or uh, so it's probably the easiest way. And anything would be appreciated. Absolutely, it's a great it's a great program. Where, what are you heading toward? You said to the global, or well, at least in the United States, of the boats that people have that all over the place, but yeah. where are you heading? So I want to continue to grow this, but also sort of uh, at the same time, I want to reach out to our elected politicians and you know, leaders of industry and, and people that have the resources and the, the ability to sort of address this PTSD issue. And, on a larger scale and say, look, you know, I'm one person, this is what I'm trying to do. I sold my house, bought the boat, and now I take people sailing, and it maybe it's gonna help five people, 10 people, 100 people, I don't know, but at least it's something. What are you doing as our elected politicians other than fighting amongst each other and wasting billions of dollars? Because they really, sh they, they should feel shamed about it. And it's not okay, I mean, I think I told you last night, but I was in Colorado two weeks ago, and. I had lunch with my friend Steve, he's a, a Denver firefighter, and he was all upset because earlier that week, one of his fellow firefighters, a, a female firefighter, I think she was in her mid-30s, hung herself because of PTSD. Um, and nobody saw the signs. I mean, she just purchased a house and adopted a dog, and everybody thought she was fine, but somehow she slipped through the cracks and she hung herself. And so 
not only is her entire family devastated, but the entire fire department, which then trickles down and affects the entire community. So what could have been done to help her? Um, so not, not an hour after I had lunch with Steve, I went and I had a, a beer with my friend Kristen, who's a West Point graduate that I've met out here through mutual friends. She's been sailing a bunch and she has PTSD from her deployments in Iraq and just sort of the awful things she's experienced. But that same week, one of her fellow West Point graduates from her class hung herself. So, I mean, with, within a 20 mile radius in the same week, you got a firefighter hang themselves and then a West Point graduate hang themselves. And that's not okay. Um, I have another friend of her friend, this guy Keith, and he was an extremely highly decorated. He started out as an army helicopter pilot and then transferred to, the, to be an Air Force pararescue uh, helicopter pilot. And this is a guy that movies are made about. I mean, he would fly in and evacuate wounded soldiers when nobody else would. I mean, if there was horrible visibility or if they were taking heavy fire, I mean, he was the guy that would go in and rescue people. And he experienced things um, that just, he wasn't able to, to, I guess, deal with. And then he killed himself last year. You know, he shot himself. And so the fact that the country's not outraged by that and talking about that, you know, here's a guy as Silver Star, Distinguished Flying Cross, saved who knows how many American lives, but somehow he slipped through the cracks and wasn't able to get the help he needed and ends up shooting himself and, you know, leaving young kids without a dad. So, you know, it makes me so angry and it, it I feel that other people should be angry about this and figure out what needs to be done. Like, I don't pretend to have the answers. I just know that something needs to be done. Are you going to go up on the hill? And Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so that's that's part of it. And, you know, I have some, some ideas planned for sort of the 20th anniversary. But for right now, it's just I'm, I'm doing what I can with my two boats and, you know, trying to, like I said, expand it and grow it. Um, I think you bring up a really important point, too, about what depression looks like and that I think maybe it's through TV or movies or something. It looks like people in bed all day, you know, sobbing into their pillow. When yeah. In fact, it's highly functioning depression. Yeah, exactly. It looks very normal. It, it, it does. And unfortunately, there's still a huge stigma with mental health and especially within the military, within mm -hmm. the law enforcement community, within the fire department community as if it's a weakness which it's not exactly it is yeah. it's seen as a weakness and I would I I understand that a hundred percent because you know for the first several years I refused to accept that I was depressed like I didn't want to hear it I thought depression was something that my my mom got um, because I didn't want to be stigmatized I didn't want to admit that you know I was weak because you know I was feeling certain ways and so that's part of it is that stigma has to be broken down you know, I mean, if you go in a, a car crash and see people burning or, you know, kids dying and uh, actually right here in Emeryville, there was a firefighter that, that killed himself a few months ago because he had seen, I think, a, a child die or something and he wasn't able to figure out how to get past that. And so, you know, what, what could have been done to help him? Is it therapy? Is it, you know, outreach? Is it support groups? Is it, did he need time off? But people should be looking at these cases and saying, okay, is there a common thread? Is there something that, that the signs were there and at this point somebody could have intervened that perhaps would have saved this person life, person's life? And the truth is, I mean, there's never going to be something that's going to save everybody. There's just always going to be people that they've had enough and, 
enough's enough. But you know, Michael, what if what if we could do something that would save one percent of the people through taking them out sailing and you know take them hiking, fishing, skiing, support groups. I mean, there's there's got to be something. And even if you could save one percent of those people, I mean, I think that's a very worthy uh, cause, and it's it would translate to hundreds of people a year. Yeah, and to understand that a human's life is important, whether they're on the street or yeah. in a fancy house, yeah. or they're running in to rescue people, yeah. or they're teaching kids, or whatever it is, or you know, pulling people out of an earthquake. Yeah, and a hundred percent. You know, every life is is very important. Um, any suicide is is tragic. For me, in particular, when you have veterans where our country is sending people there, and they were totally fine before, yeah, in most cases, but because of what our country has asked them to do, and they've done it honorably, and then I feel like we just abandon them. Like that's yeah. not okay. And same with with police and fire. Like these people are doing their jobs every day, yeah. the hard jobs that. You know, it takes a certain mentality to be able to do that, and they do it. We talk about that on this podcast a lot with many of my guests, and that that the military sends people in to train them to become uh, a hive of sometimes killers, or you know, to function as to go and do these tasks. Yeah. And then when they come back, there's no, for lack of a better word, deprogramming. Not there's no three weeks of. We're going to put you in a spa. We're going to let you yeah. talk about everything you've seen. We're going to do our best to try and help, you know, find you at work and yeah. and give you skills. And none of that, ex- I mean, I'm sh- I know there's Veterans Affairs, but that does not even begin to scratch the tip of the iceberg no. of the issue. And no. that is, that's deplorable to me. It is. And actually, one of, one of what I'll consider sort of the first success stories, and I won't mention his name, but... He was a sniper for 13 years. Uh, a friend of a friend referred him to me and he started sailing. And throughout the course of his career, I mean, he he did just things that any human would feel bad about. You know, he, he shot a kid that was planning an IED. Um, so yeah, the kid was planning an IED, but he was an 11 year old kid um, and things like that. And so he, he and I were talking about it over lunch one day and he did his job. I mean, his job was to save American lives. And so in his capacity as a sniper, I mean, he, he probably did. He probably saved hundreds, if not more, American lives. But then the toll on him for doing this has been horrible. I mean, he's no humans aren't designed to kill. You know, it's not. And, and so he did his job because he, that was his job and he had to do it. But he didn't want to be doing it. He did it because if he didn't, an idea was going to blow up a, a convoy or you know kill other Americans, but it's affected him. And there's no when he got out of the military years ago, there just weren't the resources. I mean, sure the, the VA, etc. But he told me stories of calling the VA and being frustrated because he couldn't get an appointment for like three months, and they would hang up on him and say, "Sir, you know you need to calm down." And because he was upset, you know his voice was probably loud or something, and they would hang up on him. And so that can't happen. I mean, people, people in my mind, especially if you're a veteran, first responder, et cetera, there should be a 1-800 number where somebody can call and say, look, I need help. And then they have an advocate that can literally hold their hand through the entire process. So it's like, okay, well, you're not alone. What city are you in? You know, here's a therapist. Like, we'll worry about the insurance later. 
you know, here's some support groups, I'm going to check on you tomorrow, et cetera. And as far as I know, there's, there's really nothing like that, because um, certainly I'm not aware of it. And if there is something like that, it hasn't been publicized enough where, you know, right now I could call a 1-800 number and say, yep, enough's enough, like, help me down the path of, you know, improved mental health and working through my PTSD. So, you know, there really should be something like that. But, but this guy I was telling you about, I mean, he's, he's doing better now and I attribute, right, I like to think that sailing, he became part of the crew and um, he just found being out on the water extremely therapeutic and sort of becoming friends with others. Uh, less socializing. Happy, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, he's, he ended up cutting back on the drinking a lot and he's now been able to hold a job for almost a year, which is something he wasn't able to do before. So, I mean, he's, things are looking a lot better for him now than they were a year and a half ago. And just being able to look into someone else's eyes and say, I see you and you understand me because yeah. you have it too. You have this issue too on some degree Yeah, is everything. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things with being on the boats. I mean, four or five hours isn't going to cure 20 years of, of PTSD or whatever, but sometimes just having one good day and reminding people that they can feel happy again, they can feel an adrenaline rush and excitement. And like, you know, when we saw those 20 dolphins jumping out of the water yesterday, I mean, those, those are positive, healthy, happy things. And so sometimes just having, you know, four or five hours and meeting good people, I mean, it can be enough to sort of stop that downward spiral. And that's the hope that with the, with the sailing, I mean, it's not going to cure anybody, but it might be enough to sort of help stop or slow that downward spiral. And then, I mean, I have another friend, he was a ex Navy SEAL, same thing, a lot of issues with things he's done in his life. And he started sailing, loved it so much that he actually bought a small 27 foot sailboat. And now he's teaching himself to sail. So, I mean, that's, that's encouraging. You see, and same thing, he was deep into alcoholism, um, sort of had isolated himself. And now through sailing, he's part of this community. He's now a sailor and he can talk about sailboats and people help him, you know, with his boat and stuff. So that's kind of the hope. And it's, it can't be just one thing. There has to be a multi-pronged approach of treating this. It has to be starting with leadership or, you know, the, the highest levels, really the president of the United States should be upset every time somebody kills himself, but especially a veteran. You know, every time a veteran kills themselves, the president of the United States should be writing a letter to their families, you know, apologizing for letting them slip through the cracks. I mean, it's 22 letters a day that they should be writing and they're not. And it's, it just feels like our country's turned our backs on people that deserve to be treated better. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Eric, if people want to donate, again, it's seavalor.org. Uh, and then is there any other places that you want to send people to that I'll put links on heyhumanpodcast.com? Yeah, I mean, I think the, well, the suicide prevention hotline would be a good one. Yeah, and, I'll throw that up there for sure. Um, and write your senators, you know, write your representatives. Yeah, and Tell absolutely. them that it's not okay because the more people in government that are on the side of right. Yeah will help exactly and, and tell them it's not okay but then in the same letter ask them what they're doing to get that number from 22 veterans a day down to 20 you know it's only it's a very small percentage but what are they actively doing mm -hmm. 
you know, and then so down to 18 and then 16 and then keep on going. Yeah. 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 And, and these people should be held accountable. I mean, we put them in office. It's their job. And, you know, what are they doing? I don't know. I don't know of any current legislation that's in the works. I don't know of any funding that's in the works. I mean, no veteran, firefighter, you know, health care worker, in my opinion, should ever have to struggle to get therapy or mental health care. It should just be a no-brainer. Oh, you need this? Here. Don't worry about paying for it. We're going to pay for it. I you so far to say country. housing as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's, be, that, that's a whole other... They should other. get a car. They should get all sorts of fun things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, the, and all, all that starts with good health. Stay alive. Physical and, and mental. So, Stay alive, yeah. Yeah. Eric, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Love you. Bye.